0: Grosspin, the propaganda's wind stress feeding on my attention. My countrymen, they love their fictions. Words are now. Display with good intentions.
1: Welcome to one of two hundred, the independent politics and media podcast. Another week of current events, with things moving far too fast and far too frequently. the are Ongoing genocide in Gaza uh, continues, albeit with a uh, short pause um, over the next four days. We'll touch on that first and what's happening there uh, before talking about the formation of New Zealand's new government. But first, I introduced my co-hosts. I'm joined by Jenny, uh, who also joined us last week.
0: Hi. Megan.
1: <laughs> uh, friend of the pod, Simon, also joins us as a co-host. How you doing, Simon?
2: <laughs> What's up? Sorry, I'm sorry, we're serious. Uh, this is about Gaza.
1: We're also joined by a uh, special guest, associate professor uh, in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Canterbury University, Jeremy Moses. How you doing, Jeremy? I'm um, good, thanks, Kyle. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Let's uh, just quickly start uh, with an intro uh, from you, Jeremy. Uh, just a
3: place where you're coming at this from for our audience um, on on the Gaza yeah issue, absolutely. do you want to talk about like the the situation itself or the situation here in terms of the uh, responses to people well, giving lectures? So,
1: I think well yeah definitely uh, we'll be covering both. We've covered the situation in Gaza quite a lot over the last couple of weeks. But maybe just start with what you're an associate professor of and and what your kind of yeah, sure. areas of research are.
3: Yep, sure. Um, so, I, I teach and research in, in the international relations area. Like Broadly speaking, I'm interested in international relations theory. Most, most of my uh, research and writing is on humanitarianism um, and pacifism. So, I've for a long time, I've been a, a kind of critic of the idea of humanitarian intervention, so the use of military force for humanitarian purposes. And and a lot of the reason, you know, a lot of the thinking behind that is precisely because we see how humanitarianism is deployed in situations like this as a kind of justification for, for, for mass killing <laughs> or mass destruction. And so that's something that's been a concern throughout my uh, academic career, uh, I've written extensively on it as i as I said, i've also I'm also interested in um, anti-war and and pacifist thought. And for much of the last five or six years i've I've focused on that. My current research is actually on um, new military technologies, autonomous weapon systems, and I, I came to that also through that interest in in humanitarianism because these weapons are presented as being more precise, more accurate ways of carrying out war. so this this idea of, being able to use technology to have a more sort of surgical humanitarian war um, is something that always has concerned me and is something that's really ramped up recently and is, again, obviously really important in the current situation in uh, Israel and and Gaza and the West Bank. So, yeah, they're my sort of broad research interests and, uh, you know, (laughs) alongside that I've always had an interest in the situation in uh, Israel-Palestine um, but, but you know, I've said on a number of platforms that I've always been kind of reluctant to speak about that. And when I speak to other colleagues, they they often feel the same way, that there's this sense that if you start to talk about that in a way that is not um, uh, either in some sense balanced or um or in favour of, of Israel in some way, like that represents Israel as the moral actor in, the, in that conflict, then, then you're putting yourself in at risk, you're putting yourself in, in, in danger. And, um, yeah, so that's always been something that I think is present for, for me and for others who are very invested and interested in that, in that subject for a range of different reasons. Uh, yeah, and I've seen how that plays out over the, over the past few weeks.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, it's accelerating over the last couple of weeks in particular, and I think predominantly, you know, we've seen people uh, like you and uh, uh being targeted here in New Zealand, but some much bigger um, celebrities, I guess, being targeted in the United States and the UK uh, very recently as well. Uh, and in regards to the current situation, um, you mentioned – your research about autonomous weapons and this idea of kind of more surgical uh, military operations, and that's probably one of the more absurd, horrific uh, justifications that we've been hearing uh, out of Gaza. Is oh, look how many bombs have dropped compared to the small, the small number of people that have been killed. Um, is- Israel, uh, uh, the IDF, is one of the most moral armies in the world, if not the most moral army. What what has been your immediate response to that? And how, how do you push back on that when it seems so ubiquitous within Western media and, and political circles?
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously the response is... Uh, I mean it's hard to it's hard to deal with that because when when people want to represent the leveling of an entire residential apartment building as, as somehow being a precision strike, you, you have to kind of wonder how we've how we've ended up at this point. And I, you know as I said before, that whole history of precision warfare and its relation to humanitarian interventions, you know this idea that you know we can do good with military force, we can promote human rights and defend democracy. Um, over the past 30 years, has really brought us to this point where people are prepared to are willing to accept that uh, that this was this is precise warfare. I mean, you look at some of the images. It's not just today <laughs> in during the ceasefire when people are out on the streets and showing just how extensive the destruction is. Um, it, was, it was a week into it. You know, it was back in early October. The IDF were posting images of entirely destroyed blocks. Um, and presenting it as a success, and somehow claiming that this is what precision warfare looks like, and th- that's—it's—it's it's very hard to push back against that. You know, the, there seems to be a willingness in public to accept that. And I think that the broader overlay, the the broader problem that we have to understand here is that there are power power relations in play here. That it's—it's it's not just about saying one one group is more moral or less moral than the other group. There's a broader picture of politics and power that that has led people to think about what's happening there in a, in a particular way and to accept that some people deserve to have that treatment meted out to them while others do not. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's hugely challenging. It's very upsetting to see that that's where we are now, the extent to which the public imagination has been drawn into accepting that concept of the precise war, the moral war, um, and and what you can get away with under that banner It's really evident at the moment.
1: Yeah, we have seen, um, I think it was the Belgian and Spain uh, Prime Minister speaking out this morning. The international climate is starting to shift, but we're so far into this now. Um, Northern Gaza basically doesn't exist anymore um, as a habitable area. And, you know, these justifications are absurd, you know, and and as you said, as soon as you see the footage, which the IDF was very happy to parade about um, early on um, in in their campaign of atrocity, it's very clear what is occurring. um, And yet speaking out about it, or, you know, even just saying saying what you are seeing mm. uh, has become, I don't even know.
3: I think certainly early in October it was considered to be unacceptable to speak about even about what you were saying. I think I think over the course of the month that that has changed and um, there is it's becoming less and less defensible to to speak in favor of Israel's military action. and I think the voices against it have become more and more confident as as those street protests have persisted and have grown. Um, around the world, you know the fact that we're getting—I would say at least between one and two thousand people out on the streets of Christchurch every Saturday is like incredible. Um, and it's not just—it's not just act- what you would maybe see as traditional activists. These are a lot of very sort of middle-class um, people who are coming out to to join these protests. as, as you move through the streets, more and more people join. Um, this is this is not something I've ever seen in the time that I've lived here, um, and it's certainly much more persistent even than going back to 2003 and the and the protests that took place before the war in Iraq. Um, there were very large protests at that time, but they certainly weren't as as consistent as as what we're seeing here now, and uh, I think that that's heartening. Uh, but obviously it's not much consolation for the people who've who've lost their homes who've lost their lives lost lost family members um, in Gaza and and that doesn't mean that that we therefore must be on the side of Hamas and that we support the the attack on October 7 but that's how it's represented. So that that language of the war on terror as well, going back to the early 2000s of you're either with us or you're against us, has also poisoned people's brains so much that they're so willing to accept uh, that, that that must be the only possibility, that if you don't support the IDF, if you don't support Israel, you must support Islamist terrorism uh, that you are with the Islamic State, as as the NZI, uh, what it, IINZ uh, constantly tries to imply, um, is just absolute nonsense. But that's what we're being asked to accept,
1: and that language has become. More and more ludicrous from uh those propagandists, right? And I I think that is a fair term to use for some of these groups who are smearing uh protesters. Because it started out by saying, you know, start out with the condemn Hamas uh, calls on basically every interviewer on every major media organization would would hammer people with that. Um, we've all seen it on social media if we're talking about this as well. Uh, people are pairing your replies, but but do you condemn Hamas, et cetera? Um, to just outright saying that protesters themselves are violent extremists, which is, and like not even mentioning Hamas at this point, you know, not even mentioning support for Israel or the IDF or the hostages or or any of that stuff anymore. Like, it's completely mask off. It's, that's over with. The There's been this shift to uh, this conspiracy theory from among some in that group, which is, The protesters themselves are violent extremists. Um, They are ISIS or other terrorist organisation affiliates, uh, and Muslims are trying to infiltrate our countries to cause unrest. Like, that's literally where we're at from from some of these people. But you've come under um, slightly more scrutiny than the average punter, um, such as ourselves. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about that as an academic um, and what's been happening in that space for you and how you're dealing with it.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so, like I said, it's the the subject of Israel is, and Palestine is something that uh, I don't tend to teach as a matter of course in my lectures. And if I, I reflect on that, you know, it's it probably really is a part of that sense that if you do this, you might end up <laughs> being reported or being criticised in some way. Um, even if you feel like you're just giving a factual account of what has happened there or what is happening there. So it's something that I don't tend to include as a matter of course, but I have um, taught on it when there's been um, eruptions of, of violence. And so after October 7, um, it, was, it was coming towards the end of the semester in my course, I was teaching Introduction to International Relations, and uh, which is a first-year course and a second-year course. Um, which is called international relations and humanitarian ideals, and so I had just a couple of lectures left in the semester, and and this had happened. Uh, I feel like it's my responsibility to to talk to these students about about these very momentous events that are taking place in the world. Like the the idea that I would just be like, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm not going to talk about this. I can't talk about this. It just seems completely absurd to me. But I know that in telling other colleagues and saying, oh, I'm going to give a lecture on on Israel-Palestine this week, you know, slightly reshuffle what I was planning to do. Um, People are like, oh, good, you know, good on you. It's not something that I would be willing to do sort of thing. Like, this is a very common currency. And I don't think people necessarily even think about that. Like, why? Why would you be reluctant to talk about this? You know, in many ways, the most one of the most important sort of formative problems in in international politics at the centre of so many other issues that we we deal with in this subject, but this kind of hesitancy about saying anything about it. So anyway, um, (laughs) I I ended up giving that lecture on the 17th to my first year course, uh, 17th of October. So it was 10 days after it had started. You know, Israel's bombing campaign had been going for that length of time. Uh, it was quite obvious that it was going to continue, that thousands, you know many many more people, more than double um, the casualties, the deaths on October 7 had had already been inflicted on the Palestinian people by that time. So you know, it was clear that that this response was going to uh, be disproportionate and continue to to be disproportionate. <laughs> as it proceeded um yeah so i so i gave the lecture i mean one of the things that i said in that lecture and the the thing that they've really that the israel institute in their tweets um sort of denouncing me or calling me out um that followed from that really focused on was this was the argument that i made a couple of times about um and this goes back to my broader research agenda my history of, of publishing is to say that we should not Try to apply morality to situations of war. Um, that it's not an appropriate thing to do. That that once you once you try and designate some acts of war as being moral and some as being immoral, then you're bound to slide towards what we what we see today, where people claim morality for campaigns of ethnic cleansing or genocide. Or we're doing it for moral reasons, and there's a you know the long history of thinking in international relations that says you should that it's wrong to moralize war, that war war is what happens once you've reached the, the limits of morality. It's beyond a moral question. Um, it's a purely political question. And it's uh it's one that is obviously involved in in taking other people's lives and destroying people's property. Um, so to moralize that is a problem. It's a risk, it's a danger. So that's essentially the context that I wanted to put in the student's head at the beginning of that lecture to say I'm not. I'm not putting morality on either side of this. I'm not. I'm not moralizing the October 7 attacks, <clears throat> and I'm certainly not moral. I'm not going to give moral credit to the Israel, Israeli response to that. Um, and they don't like that. The so, so in the tweets that came out, I didn't see them initially because um, so the Israel Institute did not tag me in the original tweet that they made about me, but they did tag my employer. University of Canterbury. So the intention behind that is very clear: is to to draw attention to what I had said to the university without me being able to, without me being aware of it, seeing it, um, or being able to respond to it initially. Um, and if you see that tweet, it says, "I can't." Uh, Jeremy Moses, associate professor at UC, can't tell the difference between ISIS and the NZDF. So I read this, and "I, was, I never did not mention the Islamic State. I didn't mention the NZDF in this lecture." So what, what essentially has happened is that David Kuman has had the some quotes about where I was talking about the 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 morality or the, the non-morality of warfare passed to him by a student who perhaps didn't understand what I was talking about. Um and and obviously wasn't prepared to engage with me or with their tutor or with anyone else in the university to discuss any concerns that they may have had about what I said in the lecture. They went straight to the Israel Institute. You assume um, that David Koeman wasn't just sitting on your
1: lecture somewhere like a grubby little freak. Uh, sorry, what was that? You, you, you assume that he hadn't turned up himself just to. Um... Well,
3: no, I, no, no. I mean, subsequent subsequent tweets show okay, okay. this information from a student. So, which is upsetting in itself. Um different reasons yeah so you know this this idea i mean i think that the reason why brought the nzdf in and islamic state in is precisely to sort of and you know rile up the base you know that the the people who support um that very sort of strident zionism are obviously other zionists but um also you know an assortment of (laughs) far-right groups um, many of whom are the, the worst kinds of anti-semitic people. Yeah. Um, oh, so right. this very odd coalition but so so trying to bring NZDF in it, into it was to try and bring in that sense of New Zealand nationalism having been offended by this by this lecturer as well. So when I saw this I was obviously you know very very angry about about the misrepresentation. Um, he subsequently lodged an official information request for the full for my lectures. Uh, that's still in process, so I'm not going to say anything about that. Yeah, and I just I do feel like the university is probably going to stand behind me as they already had done for Phil Burrell, one of my colleagues who was similarly targeted by the IANZ, um, and the, and the university made a strong statement in support of of him, which was great. So I'm I'm, I'm confident about that, but. I do also recognise that what he is doing is trying to make me nervous and cautious about what I say about this in the future, and I'm just not willing to to accept the terms of that, so yeah. I think.
1: And it's, for the, for those who don't know, like the, the greatest irony of this is that the, the man doing this, David Koeman, is also affiliated with the Free Speech Union. Um, it's just the most bare-faced um, appropriation Um of concepts of free speech uh to try and ensure that uh, certain types of worldviews are heard and others aren't um how how do you you say you won't kind of allow that to have a chilling effect on you how do you ensure that for yourself how do you keep your eye like on the issues at hand.
3: Yeah, I think it's difficult because there were a few days where it was like, oh, you know, I wish I, and you and you still have that thought, you know, I wish I'd never done that or responded in that way to that, whatever. You know, so it's like, sometimes it's like, I just wish I hadn't gotten into this in the first place because it's a lot of time wasted and can get stressful and it can create doubt about, you you know, well, maybe I have said the wrong thing kind of. But once you once you get through that, um, and the way I the way I got through that was to get in touch with other people like Mohan Dutta and uh, Richard Jackson, um, Josephine Varghese, who you've, who's a regular on your podcast as well. Start to build connections with people who've had this experience before. Um, you know, I went back and I started to look over the history of this in the US with Campus Watch and more recently Canary Mission. So we're there they've gone from the targeting of academic staff, the profiling of academics who speak critically of Israel. And that's moved now to targeting more students. Um, so student activists uh, get get their profiles, get put up on this website. It's not clear who runs the website or who funds it. And I'm determined not to end up in that, that New Zealand doesn't end up in that situation. I just, I feel like that that would be extremely harmful for democracy, very harmful for for education at all levels, but particularly higher education. And um, so we need to be better at building connections with others who feel similarly, um, speaking strongly against this, speaking consistently against it, and not just being like, okay, let's just don't respond, you know, leave it. Um, that's that's tended to be the to be the way to deal with it in the past. And I just feel like that that now is the time to actually <laughs> go beyond that. Like we've got an actual opportunity here because these people have found themselves um, suddenly advocating for what is very clearly at least just uh, ethnic cleansing genocide. Now is the time to to condemn this and to really um, expose the kind of duplicity and, and damage that this does to to free debate.
1: Especially when they're trying to weaponize it for political purposes, right? Um, I, I think that's always been quite clear um, ever since the reason for the FSU in particular being formed uh, was in response to censoring of uh, Lawrence Southern's Stefan Molyneux, you know, to far right white supremacists. Very obvious from day one which uh, set of sides they'd be picking. Um, in, in a lot of these battles and they, they throw out a, a confounding argument every now and then say oh look we uh, support this liberal view this time um, but yeah it's these more insidious ones where they think they can go after someone who doesn't have a high profile necessarily and you just always have to be really really suspicious of any group that's going after academics um, in this way I think just in terms of human history if nothing else.
3: Yeah, the monopolization of something like free speech as a universal principle, and it's the same for human rights or humanitarianism. If you're gonna to claim to be representing those things, you're probably you're probably gonna get yourself in trouble at some point down the track because all of those things are political and you're you you know, we're gonna get caught up in a politics that can't consistently That we don't want to see consistent free speech, we don't want to see consistent human rights, which is what we see now, we don't want to see a consistent sense of humanitarianism. And so that's the same in academia, you know, people who've advocated for humanitarian military intervention over the years are completely silent about this particular case. Because in the past, it was always on the side of NATO and the United States, encouraging that. And, now, and as soon as it's against an ally of those countries, there's just complete sort of confusion about, well, what do these universal principles mean? And I think this, the free speech thing is similar to that. It's like once the politics shift in a particular way, you can't, you can't always have that thing. And so you need to be, I think that's the same for the right and the left. You need to be careful about how you deploy those kind of universal values arguments because they could, those, those things can shift very quickly.
1: Um, I want to talk just briefly before we move on to uh, our new government um, about the way this has played out in, in newsrooms across the country. And, and Jenny and Simon, just feel free to, to weigh in at any point by the way, um, just just bust your way I'm into sorry. the conversation. I'll, I'll, I'll say no more. <laughs> um, no, 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 no. Also say more. But, you know, we, we've seen some stuff over the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, we had Tamim Shaltoni on uh, last week, um, and he mentioned when he was on Radio New Zealand uh, in the recording they put up on the website, they've removed uh, any uh, reference he made uh, to genocide. Um, There's a piece out by McCall yesterday for his In Context uh, substack where he reported on uh, the response by Rally New Zealand to clarify what had happened there. Um, and it was just this very bizarre response, which is to say oh, I didn't add anything to the conversation and it would take away time from the interviewees um, to have the term genocide in there because i'd have and this was a very but have to give uh, a definition okay um that might take a little bit of time but then they'd also need to give a right of reply um which is is <laughs> yeah it was very bizarre but I'm, I'm not sure we've seen a single newsroom in the country refer to genocide or ethnic cleansing um even to float it um as uh you know a potential um Genocide or I, I want to be very clear that our editorial stance is that this is a, a genocide campaign and the ethnic cleansing is taking place. And, and I think, like most human rights groups, um, a lot of uh, groups on the ground um, and an increasing number of nation states agree with us on that. But yeah, across the country in New Zealand, with our media has has struggled to to platform that idea. Is that Do you think, Jeremy, similar to the way that some academics have felt they can't speak out about it? Or is there something else going on here?
3: Uh, Yeah, no, I do think it's similar. Um, You know, if we go back to 2011 and the Libyan civil war broke out in the early months of 2011, um, Muammar Gaddafi made a speech where he said we're going to eliminate the rats and we're going to fight one by house by house um, until the last bullet. Sort of, and this this speech was re- then re- immediately represented by in the media and by several academic colleagues um, around the world as uh, evidence of of a genocidal campaign, and that therefore there was a need for a military intervention to to respond to that
1: because it showed intent. The bi- right? Sorry, because it showed
3: intent. Um, yeah, that's the claim. And, you know, reference was made to uh, Rwanda in 1994 and the sort of broadcasting of messages to to Hutu into Rahamwe to go out and to um, wipe out the cockroaches, which were the Tutsis. And so this was yeah seen as evidence of genocidal intent. The casualties in Libya at that time were very small compared to what we've seen already in, uh, in Gaza. And you know, it was it was a single speech. It was a very inflammatory speech, <laughs> and that and that was the international response and the, this kind of immediate consensus that we should be worried about genocide happening right now. And we've had dozens now, dozens of speeches from Israeli political leaders, right up to the prime minister, um, throughout the, minis- the various ministries, uh, the ministerial leaders, uh, the cabinet in, in Israel, um, media figures celebrities making similar or much worse statements than what Gaddafi did in 2011, you know, there's this total reluctance to to take the same line with it. Um, and that's that's what I mean when I say that these issues are, are not dictated by morality. They're not dictated by universal values. They're dictated by power relations and interests. Mm. And, um, and so the people who took those big humanitarian stances in Libya in 2011 are now silent. And that's, that that reflects poorly on them as as um, as thinkers um, as as leaders and and I think yeah we can say the same for the media here as well that they're so concerned about you know being accused of anti semitism or being a, uh, allies of Hamas or whatever that they're unwilling to to go down that path um, they're unwilling to say well maybe we need sanctions or a no-fly zone or whatever these things that we've constantly advocated for other countries over the last 30 years um, in far less far less serious situations than this but yeah it's just silence so it does it shows the power of those interests and the way they've been built up in people's minds and the the, the sort of hold that has over how we think about these about this problem in particular
2: there are maybe like two or three threads that i think sort of come up there but especially rising out of what you say, Kyle, but it's kind of interesting. There's so many different things that that come out of this. I think the Israel-Palestine question is one where maybe it's not taught like you you say, Jeremy, but perhaps it ought to be for the reason that it shows the kind of stark hypocrisy or it sort of reveals the quote unquote liberal international rules based order for sort of what it is, right? Which is the post-war imposition of American hegemony or the attempt to do so. And then the complete domination following the fall of the Soviet union. I think If we want to look at what a rules-based order is, we can say, say, well, you know, like you bring up Kyle, what is the definition of genocide? Well, there's a lot of scholarship on this, but at law, the Rome Statute is what defines that, or at least it has done so since, since 2000. And what's... Kind of interesting is if you want to look at rogue states, the United States and, the is- and Israel, neither of them are signatories to the Rome statute. They refuse to ratify it. In fact, the United States withdrew its signature after the, the September 11th attacks because it wanted to carry out a crime of aggression, the greatest crime of aggression of the 21st century, which was Iraq, right? You know, conservatively, the Lancet in um, an epidemiological study in 2011 put deaths at over a million. And that's obviously... Skyrocketed since then, to say nothing of the millions who were displaced as refugees out of that. It's just utterly destroyed the Middle East, right? So I think if you want to talk about who is a pariah state or who ought to be a pariah state and who doesn't abide by a rules-based order and who abides by what the ICJ and the Corfu Channel case sort of called, you know, the law of Thucydides, right? You know, the strong do what they must and everybody else sort of has to yield to it. It's the United States and its client states, including Israel and the Middle East. And that that's shown time and time again in the UN, right? If we look at votes that happen according to, you know, the blockade around cuba which is illegal or it you know <laughs> the, the un can't really do anything about it because virtually every country votes that it is wrong to continue the blockade this attempted you know starvation and, and throttle stranglehold of people on this island nation um and the united states israel and like some micro pacific nation are the only countries which ever vote against it right So if we want to talk about what is genteel, what is sort of civilized, I think we really have to recognize empire for what it is in that sense. That's something that's not discussed for very good reasons. And that sort of brings me to my, I suppose, the second thread, right, which is media. Uh, And you've brought this up. I think people oftentimes look at reporters and they ask, you know, this reporter seems like they've got a good head on their shoulders. Why do they question this way? Or Why is it that we don't hear this word? We don't hear that word. Is it that somehow they all believe the same thing? And what I would sort of put to that really is that it's irrelevant what a reporter thinks. Really, you could look at someone like Heather Duplessy Allen, who is a a demagogue and an ideologue and say, well, yeah, sure. She's a a white South African. She's obviously very racist, like so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. You know, she's going to say whatever... Horse shit she wants, same as uh, Mike Hosking or someone like that, although he doesn't have the excuse of being um, from an apartheid country. But I think that misses the point, really, because you can't really have left reporters, or rather, they have to wait for there to be an opening and an opportunity. Because what really matters is not what a reporter's opinion is or what their belief is, it's the structure of the institution in which they work. It doesn't matter what a reporter's belief is any more than it matters what a factory worker on the line at GM thinks. car they should make right it's the same deal the media institutions are owned by corporations or they are in the sense of tv and Z ones which are sort of split between trying to fulfill a public obligation and following the crowd of that corporate news and it's in the interests of capital to continue a genocidal campaign and not call it what it is and not have people actually understand what it is because it is necessary for the running of the way that our world order works, right? Israel is this bulwark and this outpost and has been so since the 1970s to carry out American interests in the region. And the reason for American interests in the region is fossil fuels. We've already seen that. Uh, I'm sure you know the exact details of this, Kyle, but uh, you know, the rights to fossil fuels off the coast of Gaza are already being auctioned off, right? It's flagrant and obvious what's going on, but we're not allowed to talk about it, or at least you won't hear that in, and standard news. And the third thread, I think, one that I pick up on is talking about, I think you mentioned Jeremy, you know, do you condemn Hamas? Is like this really common question that's used as a sort of gotcha, right? And oftentimes people qualified. I think this is this only happens in the West, by the way. This only happens in the first world that we say as leftists. Well, of course I don't support Hamas and October the 7th was bad, mm-hmm. but, but I would counter that completely contrarily, you know, Because uh, I can't remember the exact UN resolution, but Palestine as a colonized state under military occupation has the right under international law to resist with armed force. Now we can talk about Yusin Bello, like whether or not the particular actions on October the 7th, you know, meet certain standards or whether or not they work or don't work. I mean, but if you want to talk about a moral army, I mean, Hamas has been surprisingly, surprisingly strong at that. One thing is that people don't know basic facts. You know, Hamas is... A political party. It was the government of Palestine before it became impossible to reasonably have a sort of parliamentary government. I mean, all of these things, right? And there are a lot of other resistant Uh, Resistance groups like the PLFP in Palestine and other groups, you know, anarchist groups, um, more communist left groups, uh, things like this. And they're all united in their sort of collective resistance to oppression. But I want to sort of pull it back and say whether or not it's legal, if you want to think about it from a very basic ethical standpoint, what you're asking people to do is to condemn the leaders of the Warsaw Uprising out of the ghettos. I've just been reading Bernard Goldstein's. Uh, memoir, The Stars Bear Witness. And it's kind of fascinating how much in parallel those Nazi techniques of control in Poland and Watch in other places and in Warsaw were to Gaza. And obviously, surveillance capitalism has increased those techniques and, and the advancement of those. But settler colonialism and or exterminationism really remain the same. You know, we can think about Aimé Césaire, who talks about fascism being just the techniques of the colony turned inward toward the metropole, right, and discourse on colonialism. And I think that's something we have to sort of keep in mind as to whether there is a justification. You shouldn't really rise even to the question of, do you condemn such and such, or perhaps give a qualifying statement, or at least I feel quite strongly that I'm totally in support of every justification that Hamas or any other Palestinian group has to resist its oppressors. and. At least from a personal standpoint, I'll go on air and say, I will absolutely refuse to not only condemn, you know, to condemn and not only to condemn, but I wholeheartedly will support any people who are trying to rise out of a concentration camp and break free from it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's a a very powerful way to approach it. I think the challenge in a classroom situation is that students are not coming in with the sort of background knowledge and the reading that you have behind that. And what they are coming in with is uh <laughs> whatever those dominant narratives were after after October 7. And and basically for many of them, probably that was it. You know, that 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 that's that's what they had. And if you want to um bring people in that situation with you, you have to start at a point that doesn't immediately Seem inconceivable to them, uh, and I think that that's you know while I while I agree with much of what you what you've said, um, and you know certainly from the legal perspective, um, you know that 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 whole issue of the definition of genocide—if you look at it, any war basically could be defined as genocide. It's a very broadly defined term um, in the Rome Statute. Uh, so it does come down to a political judgment and it does come down to relations of power and, and that that's where the challenge lies. And that's why no one ever agrees on when it's happening. Um, so yeah, I think that that very strong statement that stand and position that you have is, is, is admirable and necessary. Uh, but I do think that there are challenges in and in bringing that into a classroom situation.
1: And into just wider discourse at this point, honestly, um, as I think uh, many of us um, have been talking openly about this, even just on social media, um, have found. Because uh, it's not only, you know, freaks uh, like the INZ who will will try and target you. It's a, it's a whole range of, of different groups with varying levels of of power and influence either in in media or within uh what civil society groups is that a, a good broad term for groups like yeah. the IANZ and and the FSU? I don't know um but then just like the denizens of social media itself uh who I mean, there are just thousands of comments targeting academics uh, and and politicians and commentators and media uh, who are speaking out. Uh, about the genocide in Gaza. Um, you know, a lot of that is coordinated. it's It's really worrying to bear witness to.
2: I want to talk about the strictures and the limitations of the institutions for a moment because we've talked about media, but I'm quite curious, um, obviously, for your perspective, Jeremy, you talk about the limits of the classroom and international relations itself as a field, at least. I only ever did undergrad, so I you know, can't speak to what it sort of is at a higher level or anything like that. But I wonder if you take a sort of realist lens or at least the sort of material concrete analysis that something like realism attempts and put it over the field itself, my... Feeling or perspective on it really is that things like the attendant constellations of many institutions around the sort of meta institution of IR as a a field of study, like think tanks, like uh, a lot of NGOs, is in a way to sort of construct ideological apparatuses to launder a lot of this or make it very difficult to move outside the margins like you talk about feeling uncomfortable within the classroom and I wonder if you can speak on that just you you know dropping for an example if I might give one of Joseph Nye you know one of the leaders of the neo-neo debate you know he's the liberal right and he worked hand in hand with the Clinton administration when it bombed the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical factory in Sudan killing probably tens of thousands of people around Sudan and outlying areas when they were unable to get medicine. I mean, that's it's a war crime, right? But this was justifiable under that sort of framework. So I wonder how, you know, that being the good side of IR, how you might sort of feel about the field itself and the restrictions of it or the ways that it shapes people and the material basis for that, you know, where the money is in research or perhaps, you know, the the university itself as a structure. It's a big question.
3: Um <laughs> I mean you you describe the the and I understand you put it in the scare quotes, the liberalism as being the sort of good side of IR academia. But again, to me, that's been the subject of my of my criticism for for the last however many years, 20 years. Mm um and and for obvious reasons and i think you know what was so fascinating about that whole um incident with that stuart Seldowitz, was it? yeah was i was going to bring him up as well berating the the um falafel cart owner in new york and oh. in the most vicious way um it was that just yeah. you,
1: we've all met someone like that who was able to say these absolutely horrific things i say we've all met that that's a Maybe we haven't, maybe you're lucky enough not to have.
2: Um, Most over- people are not able to threaten you with a wet works team from the CIA. I will say that.
3: Or <laughs> or yeah. well, with uh with We're his shock you. pulled out by the mukhabarat in Egypt. You know, he's threatening this guy and saying he's gonna report him. And yeah, uh, yeah, really, and for some and someone in that position, maybe that guy can do that. You know? So it's um that line between liberal, liberal and the realist um. I I think in a lot of ways the liberal side of politics in America is, has a tendency more towards that that dimension of evil <laughs> um, and that there's more there's more ethical, content and more ethical space within realism in fact than there is in in liberalism. Um, I'm not, I won't go in't in, <laughs> go into that here. In terms of the institutional structures, um, you know I've, as I've been saying to some other colleagues and others just over the last few days, it's 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 possible that if we had a different administration in my university that they could turn against me rather than defend me in this kind of situation. We've seen that in other places in other universities around the world. So I don't necessarily think that there's a uniformity to that. Um, I think universities have different kinds of leadership and they're prepared to stand up for or to defend or not defend certain things. Um, so so the leadership within individual universities is probably still most important in terms of shaping the culture of, of those universities of those universities. Um, But outside of that, when you mentioned things like think tanks and and research research centres, you know, what we've seen over the last 20 years is the increasing um, influence of uh, weapons industry money um, on a lot of those think tanks. And um, and a reluctance, I think, on the part of many academics to to question that, because the, often this is the way the funding flows, is through these outside organisations and into universities. Um, you have people crossing over between universities and these think tanks. Um, the money is coming from from weapons manufacturers. They're not allowed to speak against it. Uh, the, I have a postdoc working on my current project on autonomous weapon systems who's just published a great article on um, the interaction or the, the connections between the military, academia um, and government and the defence force in Australia. And, and over the last 20 years, those links have just grown and grown. And, and with that, we've seen more and more reluctance to speak out against Australia becoming um, a mini min, a mini military industrial complex in the image of the United States. Um, so a lot of people have responded positively to that article. Others, others are kind of offended by it in some way. Uh, so there, there are definitely structures, but I, I guess we could say that the overarching structure is the, is the sort of neoliberal profit, profit motivation um, that universities are all faced with. That, that, that has consequences for for how universities work and what they focus on uh and certainly seeking funding in order to improve their profit margins from private sources that have particular interests yeah it leads to a distortion of of what we what we think and what we teach um and the space for real independence in universities is is, is definitely shrinking so it's mm. something that you know there's a lot of different dynamics at play um it's it's definitely something we need to be aware of and perhaps be more uh, outspoken in in responding to.
1: I'm going to use it as an opportunity to do the... No, I was going to say the clumsiest segue of all time into the L- next topic. Well,
2: education, right? It's a ministerial portfolio.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I was going to say the clumsiest, but I've done much worse um, <laughs> in the past Go on this King. podcast. Go off, King. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you're talking about these neoliberal uh, structures and, and the profit motive. Um, and I guess the undermining of uh, academia at a tertiary level, but also, you know, uh, all the way through over the last, what, 50 years. And we've just had a new government be signed in to power, I guess. Some of their ministries and policy platforms have been put on the table for us to uh, peruse. And it looks like that's going to get worse. I, I thought it was going to be bad. You know, I've, I've been saying it's going to be bad since you know late last year this this podcast has been covering this for a long time now um with a lot of very sensible people saying oh they'd never do that um national would never do that they are actually more like labor um and you know there is there is truth to the equivalence between uh, national and labor as centrist parties but there's been this complete unwillingness uh to understand the way that those parties interact with their flank parties and in this case Um, act in New Zealand first are just so far beyond the pale as to anything we've seen in the last couple of decades from minor parties um, that have influence on government um, over the last 20 years, probably. And it looks like National has just wholesale acceded to a lot of the things that, a lot of the most reactionary things that, that both those minor parties have been asking for. I don't even know where to start with some of this shit. It's really bad.
2: Should we hear from our private school, boarding school representative correspondent?
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't, just for clarity, I don't work or teach at a private school or a boarding school. Um, The reality is far worse.
2: No, um, I was actually
0: looking at the ministerial list um, and comparing it to uh, the current active portfolios um, and seeing which, I guess, have been nixed or removed. And... um, some interesting choices here. Uh I think it looks like we actually don't have um, anyone um, who is on the diversity, inclusion, and ethnic Co- communities portfolio anymore. I think sounds that's about right. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple others as well. Um, But I think for me, when I when I heard the news and when I saw the list and download the PDF, I thought, okay, Luxon sure continuing the trend of having Chris's look after our country's security apparatus. That's whatever um Nicola Willis I mean, um and then getting all the way down to Judith Collins um and I see she's responsible now for coordinating the government's response to the royal commission's report into the terror attack on the Christchurch mosque Yay! and I just can't think of a person less <laughs> ideologically um and professionally qualified to take over that particular role ugh.
2: What, Judith so, Talofa-Collins doesn't do it for you for, like, this, absolutely. this racially sensitive... I have nightmares sensitive... about oh, Judith
0: Talofa-Collins frequently. Um, so it's just, it's honestly quite mind-boggling. I mean, yeah, she's got GCSB, NZSIS, um, and then the Minister for Space position, which everyone's been frothing about for absolutely no good reason at all. And then burying the lead there with the Christchurch mosque thing. So that, I think, sort of made me want to lie down for a couple hours in the dark. Just on its own, I I don't feel good about this. Um, no one feels good about this, I don't mm. think. But I I wonder if it really. I think it really sank in this morning, thinking about these people in these positions, and how I think almost every single wackadoodle racist misogynist awful policy that acts and ends at first mind bogglingly put forward is probably going to be has probably been agreed to as part of this coalition. And that's probably the scary part, is that stuff that we thought that people would never say or do or endorse publicly or inflict on the country, they've all, as a group, agreed in concert to appoint people to positions whereby they could conceivably do the most harm. And it really does kind of feel like they don't expect the country to be here in another two elections. And they're like, fuck it, you know, let's just ride this train into the fucking ground. We ball like I don't know. Maybe is that too fatalistic of me? I don't know. It's just it really just feel like a death spiral that we've just entered into with this new government.
1: I don't think. I think like it's a pretty fair response. Honestly, I I think we can like we should defend against ourselves becoming fatalistic or nihilistic about it. You know, there's a lot of work to do. I think you're absolutely right about the kind of people being put in charge of things. Uh, and you you mentioned you know the misogynistic um etc. Kind of policies that that seem to have been agreed uh, during these coalition negotiations and, and brought on board, and they're the kind of things which you know, media and other commentators were looking to say, "Oh, yes, uh, Winston Peters is just going after the vote, and he wouldn't really enact these things." And now they've got a policy line in their coalition agreement about gender in sports, you know, mm. which is like an anti-trans talking point. They have, you know, any number of. of of different things like that. They're uh, doing uh, more conspiracy-laden, I don't even know what to call it, uh, interrogation of the COVID inquiry uh, Mm -hmm. because that was one of the groups that Winston Peters was trying to get to vote for him. I, yeah, I'm at a loss for words uh, in the way that not only some of these outright reactionary uh, conspiracy theory-driven policies have been adopted within the coalition agreement. You know, So the, these are things which national are required uh, to oversee as government, but also the number of failed policies that are being reenacted, mostly from ACT. Um, mm-hmm. But New Zealand First agrees with a lot of these as well. They bring back three strikes, or at least mm-hmm. they're going to attempt to. Uh, a, just avert failure last time we had it here. Uh, bring back charter schools now called partnership schools also a failure here and in many other places in the world bringing i say bringing back uh, but it's really rebranding david seymour is going to have his ministry of regulation which is really the ministry of productivity uh i do know the productivity commission which act uh got over the line in 2008 when they were last in government uh to do the same thing as the ministry of regulation is planning to do today but has been decommissioned because it stopped doing what david seymour wanted it to do and he wants another thing that does the thing that he said it was going to do originally um and it's just a like obvious joke i don't think there's anything You know, people are trying to find, like, silver linings or whatever. Oh, here's this one good thing. Uh, New Zealand First says they want the grocery commissioner to have more teeth. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, I I I don't see any of that happening. Brooke Van Belden, Deputy Act Leader, is in charge of workplace relations.
2: Yeah.
1: And they're bringing back 90-day trials and getting rid of fair pay agreements. What do people think is going to happen? And none of this was campaigned on. Binational, like all these things that are being brought into here by these minor party, like policy vats, you know, where they, where they grow this this horrific, uh, virulent uh, garbage, was, was directly campaigned upon by the, the ruling party. You know, this is not stuff that people voted for. Let's talk about mandates if, you know, um, that's the direction we want to go to or uh, political traditions or norms. This is completely out the gate. Kyle, you don't understand.
2: It's uh, progressive because they're a throuple. They're actually a <laughs> polyamorous group of men. And I think it's problematic <laughs> of you to question that a little bit. What I was going to say is from a high level view, you sort of ask, why is this the case? And the answer is because Luxon is on the D low. Like firstly, in the way, you know, wink, wink, but also in the way where like, he is almost certainly a mouth-foaming fundamentalist evangelical, something media has not questioned at all. Like, it's crazy that in the 2000s, there was this huge backlash to United Future cozying up as a minor party with these fringe Christian fundamentalists right and now the leader of one of the main parties and who is going to be prime minister is someone who probably thinks abortion is murder and just knows he's smart enough not to say it on television and nobody will question him about it but that's the really concerning thing is that national didn't campaign on this these aren't national policies quote unquote but they are fine with it for the reason that their leader almost certainly has sympathies with a lot of these extremist far-right viewpoints in act and that's the reason they've been brought into the Big Ten Is not because they're uncomfortable and not necessarily just because they want to have power, although obviously that's part of it is, you know, power at all costs, right? But it's also because it's not anathema to him as a person and probably a lot of the other people in national. National is sort of attritioned and bled out most of its, I don't know what they call liberals. I don't really know what that means uh, in the context of national, but whatever. I mean, Labor's our liberal party, right? So um, a sort of, you know, soft right-wing party. So it's kind of weird. But on the other hand, you know, you look at some of the people who do remain, who were considered the social liberals or whatever it is. Again, whatever that means without the context of economics and class relations, right? Sort of a meaningless subject, you know, like gays can have rights as long as they're rich, you know, and and they're not trans kids being kicked out by their families, whatever. But some of those people are like, you know, uh, Chris Bishop is a good example. Now, People have made much hay about the fact that national is scrapping uh, a lot of the measures that were agreed upon in bipartisan fashion toward getting rid of tobacco smoking from people well who used to be a tobacco lobbyist mm. chris bishop that's as far as i'll take it for defamation reasons but like you can look at this stuff and say how meaningful is it that firstly there were quote-unquote uh liberal you know national mps but secondly that the people who remain are people like Judith Collins and Chris Luxon, and that they are not in an uneasy alliance with acting New Zealand first. They're simpatico. The reason for the shakiness of the coalition is that they're egotistical monsters who can't work with anybody else. That's the reason why they're all Patrick Bateman. It's not because, you know, they, they don't agree with them broadly ideologically or they're uncomfortable or like, you know, I can't believe what Umphi said on the timeline about it.
3: I think, if we look, if you're looking for a silver lining, it's the presence of Te Pāti Māori. Surely, um, you know, not in government, but uh, just presenting um, uh, a political alternative uh, that that Labour is not not willing to present, and I think one that's more compelling than what the Greens are capable of presenting. Um, And so they're going to continue to be there. They're going to continue to be outspoken. Uh, They are going to, I think, if they, if I think they will continue to grow if they uh, continue on in in the way that they um, acted in the last, the last term of parliament. And, you know, we have to build solidarity around that like i think it's not it's i know it's a you know it's a bit of an old cliche it's not just the the election and then so for the next three years we have to live with this like we just have to keep pushing back against it and those positions that are extreme um that simon mentioned you know whether it's on a on abortion or any other any other kinds of issues need to remain extreme (laughs) they can't be allowed to become mainstream you know i grew up in in australia and so, from the late '90s into the early 2000s, the the uh, the sort of virulently racist anti-refugee sentiment became mainstream, and the Labor Party was afraid and unwilling to to deal with that. And now, look, Australian politics is is far beyond, still far beyond what we're experiencing here in terms of its uh, in terms of the the radicalism, the extremism of the mainstream in Australia. So I think it's our responsibility to to continue to you know build movements and 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 maintain resistance during this uh this cycle uh, rather than just waiting for the next, next election and hoping that things things are better then I think that you can keep things at at the margins, if you if you push back, and because of the fragmented nature of this coalition, that that, that leaves that door open, and the fact that there is this strong voice in parliament in Te Pāti Māori, who are and and some of the Green MPs as well, who are willing to to take a lead on some of these issues, then yeah, we need to need to make that really significant.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the clarify like the clarifying moment of what. One of our major parties has become here is something that we really need to, I mean, we're not going to lose sight of it, but I I hope that the way that National interacts with its minor parties isn't used as a justification as it has been in the past. So the ACT party under the John Key government was often used as the kind of like uh, pressure valve for some of the more extreme neoliberal policies, right? Oh, we had to do X, Y, Z because... we had to give them something, otherwise they'll collapse the government. That's not that shouldn't be allowed to cut it this time, as you said, Simon. They they agree with these things. Like they, some of these things wouldn't have got across the line unless they had a sympathy for them. But we'll definitely be seeing that over the next few months, as Christopher Luxon or Nicola Willis or whoever saying, "Oh, oh, sorry, it's in the coalition agreement, so we're forced to." No, you're not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not forced to. Uh, and, and we know that, you know, Luxem was over in the UK, talking to think tanks there who are directly associated with uh, ACT astroturf groups here. There are people in the offices of the National Party who are ex-New Zealand Initiative, for example. Nicola Willis, I think, is ex-New Zealand Initiative herself. Um, and the ACT Party uh, policy is directly in line uh, with some of those sorts of things, some things, stuff like special economic zones, for example, that really out the gate almost anarcho-capitalist shit. Uh, this is what they've been researching. This is what the kind of policy they they want to enact. They are trying to move us there slower than Act would, because they've got a better sense of what the electorate can take. But they want to be in that same position. I think the the things that I'm. There's a lot to be worried about, but a a couple of things I'm keeping a particular eye on are David Seymour being given Associate Minister of Health Pharmac. That's fucking terrifying. Um, I'm not sure if uh, anyone will remember, but Act number 4 on the list, the guy kind of being brought into the party to do pharmaceutical stuff, uh, had an interview during the election campaign where he basically said medicines should be funded Depending on how much they increase human productivity, uh, the implication being that we shouldn't fund medicines for people with chronic illnesses because it won't get them back into the workforce. That's really eugenics. <laughs> like there's it, not really any other term for it. Uh, and that's the the outside edge of this stuff, but what we're looking at is is deregularization uh, deregulation and greater privatization will be very much on the agenda, similar to a a lot of the rest of the Western world. Um, What you're seeing happen at at pace in the UK uh, and has already been the case in the US for for decades now.
2: Uh, You talk a lot about what the national mps are doing what the act mps are doing which i think is good and th- one of 200 has been one of the few podcasts that's asked who are the act mps by the way which for some reason the press just hasn't asked because wh- how many were there in the last term there was more than five right like there were, there were how many were there? seven in total and like if you go below the top two subtly you start to get into like Second Amendment, American-style gun nuts, right? Like, this is really concerning stuff. Those people. And looking at this list... There are one, two, three, four, five, six, six Act MPs who have portfolios. Who are they? Let's find out. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's I'm no, I will not say it's not important. And it's not necessarily not important to talk about an election when it's coming up. But I, if I may like slip into dark ML mode for a moment, um, which I'm not a Marxist Leninist, but sometimes it's fun to put the little hat on. You know, this bourgeois parliament is kind of, you know, you can pay attention to it a little bit, but our task is to sort of ask ourselves not only why did this happen not only what could have been done better but what did we do better for next time and who do we look to who is an institutionalized uh coalition coalition not coalition coalescing sort of focus point of left power that's that's actually organized and one of the few things we have left other than you know groups like auckland action against poverty or someone like that uh is or our sort of uneasy alliance with you know these, these charities like the sallies or whatever it is um, who are not so great but sometimes okay on certain issues it's the unions right so our question is like where were the unions in the last election or in leading up to it and not only in the last election but during the labor term right what does it mean if our biggest representatives of organized left power are not putting anything forward that's more than like fair pay agreements, which is a good thing, I will say, but it is nothing to undo the damage of the last 30 to 40 years. And it really doesn't build that sort of power right outside of parliamentary politics. The question is what happens when a right-wing government gets into power? And like one, we don't like when that happens, but two, It shouldn't matter this much, really. We should be able to resist. And right now, there aren't as many routes for resisting, and we don't have great organization for resisting it. We know how to protest by doing a hikoi, by doing a walk, or by having placards, by assembling at a place. We don't really know how to do much more than that. And The problem is that placards only work if the people that you're showing the signs to have a conscience. And parliament has no conscience. If I can paraphrase Kwame Turo for a moment, it has none. New Zealand is a settler colonial state. It will always be that way. The colonial government that represents it can't really, you know, respond to that in a meaningful way. And the people who get elected to those positions only fringe people like some of the Green MPs or like Jeremy was saying to Party Māori who've been amazing on so many issues. They're always going to be on the fringes of that, right? And Labour will not work with them as much as it can or it will try to disempower the Greens, you know, because National will always say, you know, like you said, Kyle, Uh, this is ACT's problem, this is why we have to do it, it's in the coalition agreements. If it were the reverse, Labour would never do it for the left. The ratchet only goes one way, right? Um, So the question is, what do you do outside of that? And I think that has to do with your tactics and part of it is building that sort of organisational power. One of 200 is something where, you know, alternative media is a good example for that. You're already working on that sort of stuff, which is really good. Um, But it's really asking ourselves, how do we have in place uh, the ability to resist in a meaningful way and to prevent a lot of these things from being carried out in real material concrete ways. and that's something that I think you know would leave to somebody who's an organizer that you can come and interview I'm sure you'll do much more of that in the coming years but that's really something to think about is not, how do we influence labor? Or perhaps we can do our own little Blairite, you know, or, or Trotsky's sort of infiltration of it or something like that. No, our enemies have the money. We can't do that. We can't beat them on those grounds. But what we can do is we can sort of twist labor's arm to do things, right? Or we can make it so that, you know, we democratize the unions such as they are ossified in their state currently, or that they don't stop to management so much. And it's questions about how we do that and how we build those alternatives and how we support and feed each other and shelter each other. As we go through this term. And that I think is something to think about as more long-term planning, you know? So that's in two parts, right? First of all, a kind of retrospective, a debrief. What went wrong? Why did it go wrong? Probably almost all the stuff that one of 200 was saying was going wrong, was going wrong. Not to, you know, jerk you off too much, but in this term, I like that you smile, but it's visual so nobody can see that. <laughs> and I laughed so it's audio. Yeah. Oh, great. That's great. I'm not off base. Um, And two is like, where do we go from here? Right. And that's got to be a real, real sharp question. And we shouldn't shy away from that sort of criticism, not to to trash each other, but rather to ask what went wrong and how do we make it go better and not coddle ourselves and be like, oh, well, you know, we believe the right things. We do the best. We, f- we have great intentions. Everybody's got great intentions or believes they do. But materially, What's the basis for moving forward? How do we really concretely action that? And how do we bring together these alliances, you know, like People Against Prisons, like Auckland Action Against Poverty, like um, our Renters Unions? And how do we put that forward through communications, through media? All these things have to work together in concert, something which we're not so great at in part because we're capitalist subjects, right? We get individualized and we, we can't escape from that sort of ideology of being shaped into individuals. But we have to become a collective in order to do that. And that, I think, is the task of the next three years and beyond it, and it ties everything together, including the most important thing, which is climate action.
3: Yeah,
1: absolutely agreed. Um, and I'm really hoping that having such a out the right-wing government, just looking to extract as much as possible from the populace in the country, is uh, energizing. Uh, towards those goals. Um, but we actually have to take action as well. I think the final thing to ask uh, about this incoming government before we close up for the day is to swing it back around to Gaza. And Jeremy, our government have been really bad on this by and large. I think the only indication we've had out of the National Party is a combination of uh, Christopher Luxon saying he hadn't seen advice on Gaza yet and. Chris Bishop just becoming incredibly nasty in responses to constituents. Do you see any hope here for, a, don't know, a a stance
3: at all from this national government on Gaza? Um, It's a good question. Um, And one that I hadn't really turned my my thought to at this point, to be honest. Uh, It's interesting, obviously, that Winston's back. At foreign affairs, in many ways, probably the safest place for him to be. Uh, and I don't know. In my when he was previously in that role, and in uh, whenever we, we take our postgraduate students up to Wellington to meet with political leaders and things every year, and we used to meet used to meet with him when he was foreign minister. And I I tend to think that his outlook on international politics, while still heavily influenced by an American perspective, is there's still a sense of realism to how he views international relations and um, that, yeah, not that sort of highly ideological (laughs) uh, approach to, to international politics. So it's possible that I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what Winston Peters may be thinking about what's happening. I don't know if he said anything about it. Um, Not yeah No, I mean, I don't expect there to be any any kind of interesting <laughs> radicalism coming out of this government on on what's happening in that situation. If anything, I suspect they'll they'll be just even more willing than Labor was, and it was obviously really interesting and revealing to see how how afraid labor were even in that sort of lamed up space um, where they were able to say something um, but were' still unwilling to to really do anything until you know until very late on in the peace. Yeah, I, I don't have much hope for for that getting any better, to be honest. but but if Israel's genocidal actions continue to intensify over the coming weeks, then a lot of people are going to have to start to consider where they stand. Um, I think, as we said at the start, we've already st- started to see some shift over over the last month on that, um, and it's it's going to at some point become untenable to to be standing strongly on the side of Israel and the United States on this on this issue, and if they don't realise that, they're going to end up humiliating themselves. So hopefully, <laughs> there's some modicum of. Good sense and reason <laughs> in there somewhere that that people realise that this is just completely untenable to continue to un- unconditionally back Israel's attack on on Gaza, uh, but remains to be seen. Well, thank
1: you so much for joining
3: us, Jeremy. <laughs> it's been very very interesting, very good conversation. So thanks for inviting me.
1: Anytime, anytime. And uh, thanks to my co-hosts, uh, Jenny. Thank you.
0: Sorry, I didn't realize I was muted. But yeah, no, keeps <laughs> having me. it's great great to listen, honestly. I'm glad that I got to just kind of like take a back seat this week um, mm. and not swear too much. Nice. <laughs> uh,
1: and thank you for joining us for the first time as well, Simon.
2: I had to hold myself off from doing so many impressions. So thank you for the opportunity.
1: <laughs> we'll be, we'll get you back to do
2: some of those later. Quote unquote, jerking you off once. <laughs> That's my quota for the, the week.
1: All right, look, we can get you back to do more of that as well that's been another episode of one of 200 thank you so much for listening share like subscribe leave a comment patreon in the summary jeremy if people want to find you online where can they do that um
3: well uh you can look me up on the university website uh i'm still i mean i've only re-emerged on twitter as a consequence of the gaza situation i've kind of not used it for a long time before that uh so yeah i'm I, I'm, I'm visible there as well, just under my name. So um, yeah, anyone's free to get in touch with me. I don't know, talk more about this stuff or you know, if I can send you my research and things like that, whatever, whatever people are interested
1: in. Fantastic. And we'll link to, to that and to our co-hosts as well in the summary below. Thanks once again. We'll be back uh, for some content next week. Who knows what's on the agenda, uh, but at least for current events, we'll catch you next time.
0: This is odd and I'm living a pointless life But I'm learning all your lessons fucking politics There's no distinction, the road's apart now It's paid with good intentions And I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say On the cruises of course we ought to stay Cause I live amongst the people every day Forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're all